If you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs. They are the maroon or burgundy um, Bibles. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, just by way of reminder where we've been, as we've seen in these, in these verses that we've been in now for a few weeks, we saw that Jesus kind of broke the news that he is going to leave and that they're not going to be able to come with him where he's going. Not only that, but he broke the news that their leader, Peter, is going to deny him, deny Christ, three times that very night before the rooster crows, before the sun rises. And we've seen that Christ is seeking to comfort or encourage his disciples in their discouragement, in their, in their weariness here. We saw, firstly, that he encouraged them with this promise that he was leaving, but that he was going to prepare a place in heaven for them, and that he was going to one day return and take them so that where he is, they would be with him also. We saw last week a promise that the ministry that they have begun, the work that they are doing, would continue after he was gone. That greater works, he said, even than he did, they would do. And we saw that that wasn't necessarily greater signs and miracles that all of us through faith can raise the dead or feed 5,000 people, but that the breadth and expansion of gospel ministry would explode after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord. And we see today the third of these three promises by way of encouragement to these saints. So we are going to pick up in verse 13 of John chapter 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Lord God, we do come to you and we ask in your name. We pray in faith, according to Christ, our mediator, and we ask your blessing upon this service, upon this time that we spend together in your word. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, infallible, authoritative word. And I am a a sinner coming before you in fear and trembling, to handle your word. I ask and pray your blessing. I know that I can do nothing apart from you. I pray that anything that is of me, that is of the flesh, would fall upon deaf ears. I pray that you might encourage your saints through the proclamation of your word, that your word would have its way in our lives, in our souls, that you might speak to us today, Lord God, we pray and ask in faith, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever wondered what the perfect prayer is so that God would answer every time? I mean, is there just the right formula, right? If I just say it exactly right, if my heart's in the right place, maybe it's the posture of our our bodies. You know, if you're, you got to be on your knees, but you can't just be on your knees. You got to really be hurting. It's got to be about 20 minutes in wood floors, you know, really feeling the pain. Then maybe God answers those prayers. Maybe it's just, you know, sometimes you hear someone pray and all of a sudden they start speaking that Elizabethan English. They get King James on you and, you know, thou's and thighs. Maybe it's those kind of lofty, beautiful sounding prayers that, that God answers. This text, I, I think, has been often misused or often abused as, as a tool, you know, just to say, hey, if I say in Jesus' name, then I get what I want. God's, he says he'll do it. So if I say in the name of Jesus, if I tack on those words, then God has to do what I said. 
and the preceding verses we read last week, very similar, right? Some of these verses with a surface reading, if we don't read them in their context in the light of the rest of the Bible, you know, we can make a little a, a doctrine or a theology out of them. But we always want to interpret Scripture with the rest of Scripture. Because God is the author of the Bible, every verse is in the context of every other verse. And so we want to read any verse in light of all the verses, the whole revelation that God has given us. Because this is a little bit of a challenging text, I'm taking a different approach today. I want to ask three questions of these two verses, three questions of these verses. Number one, why does Jesus say this? Why does he give these assertions, these promises to his disciples? Number two, what is the purpose of doing these things? And then number three, what does it mean? What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name, to ask in his name? So firstly, why? Why is it that he says these things? Well, we've, we've seen this kind of at length so far, that his purpose here is to comfort, right? It's to encourage them. Their souls are troubled, they're weary, they're, 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 in, they're fearful now, he's going to leave them. So he seeks to comfort them. And I see two things happening here. Number one, it is comfort with a promise of ongoing communion, ongoing communion, ongoing fellowship with Jesus, and then secondly, ongoing ministry. Firstly, there's a promise of ongoing communion. And again, we would understand, right? These guys have been with Jesus for three years. I mean, they've, they've lived by his side. They basically walked away from everything. They've, they've looked to him. They've trusted in him. They've gotten their strength from him. Certainly, they've confided in him. They've been trained up. They've ministered alongside of him. And now they learn he's going to be gone. And they've been, they've been soaking up everything that they could while they are in his presence. But they probably didn't really think about the day when potentially he wouldn't be there because he was always there. And all of a sudden he's going to be gone. We can understand probably their anxiety, their fear, their trepidation. And you think about a young person leaving the home for the first time. Maybe you and you were becoming an adult, right? And you were going to go live on your own, whether it was to go to college or just to get a place of your own. And in one hand, there's a lot of excitement, right? This has been a day that's been building up your whole life, been kind of looking forward to that day when you, you know, fly the coop. But there's some anxiety there. There's some pressure that all of a sudden, this is on me. You know, I don't... I, I'm not just going to come home to a fridge full of food and, a, and the light's paid, right? But I got I to gotta make it happen. And there's some sense of that here, that they've had Christ by their side. They've, they've had him to look to at all times. You've got a question. I mean, go to Jesus, right? He's, he's got the answer. And all of a sudden, he's going to be gone. But the promise, the promise is that they can still call upon his name. That communion or fellowship or this relationship that they have will still be possible. It doesn't end simply because Jesus leaves their presence physically. Another way to say it is that they will have his ear. Just as they've been able to pray to the Father, they will now be able to pray to the Son. As you think about that, this this ongoing communion, ongoing fellowship with Christ, think about really what it means to be a Christian. I mean, what does it mean to be a Christian? Certainly to be a Christian is to be saved, right? To be saved from from what? Saved from our sin, certainly. Saved from God. God, 
really saves us from himself, right? He saves us from the penalty of, his, of, of our sin, but he is the one that penalizes us for our sin. So God saves us from his wrath, from the judgment that is due our sin. To be a Christian is to be forgiven, right? Our sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. Our, our guilt is gone. To be a new creation, to be a Christian, it means to be set apart to Christ, a follower of Jesus, right? A disciple, a learner of Christ. But even at a more fundamental, basic level, to be a Christian simply means to know God. Christians are those that know the living God, that have a relationship with their creator, that have communion with the Trinity. As crazy as that is, if you really ponder the reality of what I just said, that we have fellowship with the triune God. Just because he's not physically present does not mean the relationship will cease. It is Jesus himself, haven't got there yet, but John 17, that said, this is eternal life, as he prays to the Father, that they know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So when someone asks you, what is eternal life? It's not just about a quantity, that it's very long, it never ends. But it's about a quality of life. It's about knowing God. To be a Christian is to have communion with the living God. And we do that primarily through prayer. Prayer is how we communicate with our Lord. And can I just say, I love God's providence is just kind of amazing. He is always working little things out. It's just funny that as we started a lesson on prayer in Sunday school, the sermon is on prayer, and it seems like every time God is just weaving these little things together, just showing His fingerprints all over our lives. But prayer is how we commune with God, that we can have an ongoing, vibrant, real relationship with God, but He's not actually here physically, presently, where we can see Him and look Him face to face. A.W. Pink speaks of this disconnect, but connection, really, that the disciples are about to experience. He says, true, He, Jesus, would be in heaven and they on earth, but prayer could remove all sense of distance. Prayer could bring them into his presence at any time. And as that was comforting for them in their day, I think it's comforting for us as well. I mean, because these guys, they knew Jesus, right? They lived with him for three years. They ministered alongside of him for three years. They had all of that to look back upon. But as Christians after the cross, all of us, right, post-cross, We've always lived by faith and not by sight. We've never seen the risen Christ, but we know that this promise is for us and for our children, for all that God is calling to himself, that we have ongoing communion or fellowship, koinonia, a relationship with God the Father, with God the Son, and with God the Spirit. And as A.W. Pink said, prayer at any time brings us directly into the presence of Christ. No appointment necessary. Just boom, Lord God, and he's, he, he, he hears. So those times when God feels distant, and those times when God, because of whatever's going on in our lives, where we might just say, and I just don't, I don't sense God's presence. I don't, I don't, I mean, we know he's there. It's not a feelings thing, but there can be that feeling that God is just distant. Or when our hope just seems to, Plummet. 
when we're going through life and we just don't see much that we can hope in. We don't see a light at the end of the tunnel with the things that we might be going through. When our doubts seem to overtake us, when we, can't, when we don't have a lot of faith but we're struggling, when fear really seems to overwhelm, and it's all that we can see, our anxieties, our struggles, when joy abounds, and we just want to reach out to the Lord and, and rejoice with Him. Anytime, in a million other situations, prayer brings us directly into the presence of Christ. This promise is not only for them, but this promise is for you today, Christian. That you have, hallelujah, the access, the ability, the privilege, the honor to go before the living God and speak to Him. Call upon His name. Secondly, though, this promise, firstly, ongoing communion, that this relationship they show treasured is not severed simply because he is going to heaven, but secondly, that there will be ongoing ministry, ongoing power, really, through Christ. And we talked about this last week, but I bring it up again because these two verses really are, they go together. Verse 12, chapter 14, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. See that the promise of calling upon his name is in the direct context of the continuing work that Jesus did. It's an encouragement to them, a reminder that yes, the ministry will continue, and yes, at any time, for whatever reason, you can call upon me, and I will be there to help, to come alongside of you. Again, this promise is for them, but this promise is for us. Right, when Jesus came to this earth and lived this relatively short time and ministered for a very short time, about three years, Right? He accomplished redemption for every sinner that would ever become a saint. Right? He did everything that was necessary. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He victoriously rose again, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So that he could say at the cross, it is finished. But the church was very small at that point, right? I mean, when we consider the entire globe... In the relatively small area that Jesus ministered, there was much more ground to cover. But this promise that to call upon his name, that the ministry of the church, of the gospel, will continue, it's for us. At any time we need Christ, every time, beloved, you labor for Jesus, he is there to be called upon. As you serve Christ in your daily life, you know, oftentimes we might think of serving Jesus, and we think of ministry. We think of something I do in the church, a Bible study of this or that. But as you go throughout your life, as you faithfully love your wife, man, as Christ loved the church, man, that's a, that's a high bar. That's a, that's a fear and trembling kind of verse. Ladies, as you submit to your husbands, as the church submits to Christ, high standard there, high bar that he calls us to. Young people, young people, Ashlyn, Haley, 
Twinsies. <laughs> Charlotte, you're in your own world. Hi. Do you know that you serve Christ by honoring your mother and father? That, that one of the main ways that children serve Jesus is by honoring their mom and dad. And that's number one, and we talked about this last week. When he talks about how we're all to love our neighbor and interact with people, the first commandment he gives is honor your mother and father. And it's the only one with a promise. It is the only commandment that he gives with a promise. But we serve Christ as we are, are obedient to the authorities that he places in our lives. Parents, as you raise your children in a fear and admonition of the Lord. In the workplace, as you do all, whatever you do, unto the Lord, all for his glory. As we serve him in our daily lives and as we serve him in gospel ministry, of course, there's much overlap here. But there is a promise that he will continue to build his church and that any time we have the ability to call upon his name. And he says, I will do it. What you ask, I will do it. And I don't know about you, but man, I got to do this all the time, <laughs> all the time, right? I need power. I need help. I need guidance. I need wisdom, Lord. I need grace. I need help in this endeavor. So, so why, the why is, again, comfort to promise. The fellowship will continue and the ministry will continue. Number two, what is the purpose? What is the goal of Jesus doing these things? Well, he tells us right there in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The purpose of Jesus answering the prayers of the saints, the ultimate purpose that the works that he did will continue through his saints is the glory of God, that God would be glorified on this earth. As Jesus goes back to the Father, he departs from this world, his redemptive works or his saving works continue through the saints. And as that happens, God is glorified through his church. Christian believer, have you ever, really human actually, but specifically in a specific way, Christian, have you ever considered that you exist to bring glory to God? That really the ultimate purpose of our lives is to magnify the Lord, is to bring Him glory, that the world might look at you in your life and say, wow, only God could do that. I used to know her. She was awful. I used to know that guy. I used to know that family. Man, they were messed up. They had issues. They had struggles. They were riddled with sin. They were filled with pride. What happened? Only God can do a work like that. That you might be a lamp, a lighthouse, directing others to this awesome God, a, a beacon in the night of God's grace. I've preached on this at least a couple times that I can remember this theme of the glory of God. It's, it's, it's pervasive in the Bible. It's everywhere. New Testament, Old Testament. But in Isaiah chapter 43, the Lord here, or the prophet, speaks of the people of God, the Old Testament believers. And the Lord says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. That means if you are called by the name of the Lord, then he created you for his glory. That you might bring God glory, that the nations would say 
the Lord reigns, that they might praise His grace because of you. Paul picks up on this theme, 1 Corinthians 10. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And you can't really get more basic in life than eating and drinking, right? All of us do that. He says, when you take that nice, cold glass of water, next time you come in the house and you're warm and, and, and you're hot, you've been working in the yard or whatever you've been doing, drink that glass of water to the glory of God, praising the God that gives, praising Him for all of His gifts, all of His goodness. The next time you're scrubbing the floors in the house, or one of those menial tasks that we don't necessarily love to do, Praise the God who gives that you have a floor and hopefully a roof, right, over your head. All that we do, not just worship, not just religious things, not just church stuff, but that all of life is unto His glory to magnify God, that we might exalt the name of Christ. Paul, as he writes his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, he gives this short testimony. He tells young Timothy why it is that he was saved. I love this scripture. He tells Timothy why God chose to save him. In 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He says, God saved me so that he would get glory, so that people would look to him and say, that guy was a murderous zealot. He hated Christ, and he called people that worship him idolaters, and he put them in chains, and he took them to their death. Wow, look how patient God is. Not only that he allowed that man to do those things, but that he would save that sort of person. What does that say for you, beloved, and all of us and the world out there? That God saves sinners, <laughs> even the worst, right? He saves wretches. He saves terrible people that we would say there's no hope for that person. And you probably all have some people in your past. I got a guy that comes to my mind every time. And that guy, he's so stubborn. He never would listen. But God, in a moment can change his heart, and how glorious would it be to see Joel Bowler <laughs> come to faith in Christ. Man, God saved Paul to bring himself glory, and beloved, God saved you that he might get glory through your life, that you might be seen as a trophy of his grace, that the world might look to you and say, what sort of God is this? What sort of grace is this? And Jesus says in John 14 that he will answer prayers in his name and that the church will do greater works than he did so that the Father would get glory through the Son. That's the goal. That's the purpose. I love the first question, kind of famous question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? What's the purpose of our existence? to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever. And I love that twofold answer 
Because if they just said to glorify God, then we could all become Pharisees. Right? We could all say that God is glorified because I fast more than you, and I read more than you, and I pray more than you, and I give more than you, and I'm finding that strength in myself, and God is so glorified because I'm so strong. But they added there to enjoy Him forever, that we might love and adore God. And John Piper, 400 years later, kind of picks up on this same theme He's pulling from Jonathan Edwards. He's pulling from C.S. Lewis. But he says this, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. The more joy that you find in God, the more satisfied that we are in the Lord, the more contentment that we have in Christ, the more that He is glorified through our lives, through our speech. Because if our joy, our contentment, our satisfaction is in Christ, then the world is going to see that. Our families are going to see that. Our co-workers are going to see that. But if I am not satisfied in Christ, if I am not content in Him, if I have no joy in the Lord, then the world's going to see that. And God is not going to be glorified because God is going to be seen as inconsequential, as really irrelevant. But what that means is He says this, that, that the prayers in His name will be answered so that the Father would get glory through the Son. I, I believe what that means that means the same for us, right? That when God answers our prayers, He does it for His glory. But it's not just prayers. It means when He shines the light of the Word into your heart and exposes your sin, He does it so that He would get glory, as painful as it can be in those moments. When He chastens you with corrective discipline, as any loving Father does, He does it for the glory of the triune God. When, you, when He helps you to provide for your family. When He keeps you in the faith, Christian, every day, preserving your faith lest you fall into temptation. All of this and so much more He does for the glory of the triune God. That our lives might magnify the name of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. This is really a question for me too. <laughs> what if in every situation that we walked into, every encounter in our life, we asked ourselves the question, how can I give God glory in this? How can I glorify the Lord when I walk into Winco in his packed house and that guy comes behind you with his cart and he rams your heels? Now, there's a lot of sins that are forgivable, but I'm not sure about that one. You know, and you, oh, hi. <laughs> How are you? How can I glorify God in that sort of situation? When you're in the DMV and you, Take your little number and you sit very patiently in your seat, right? How can I bring God glory? When I answer the phone and it's a salesman and he's got a pitch for me and I'm busy, and how can I give God glory? When you discipline your children, right? Frustrated and, oh, how can I glorify God through this? When we lead our children to family worship, how can I bring glory to God? Children, when you participate in family worship, right, how can you bring glory to God by, by, by sitting? When we're in church, right, when we come to church, how am I going to bring God glory today? And the normal stuff, right? When I make my dinner, or do the laundry, or whatever it might be, how can God get glory through this exercise? And I think also it's a good 
it's a good litmus test in our encounters, in our, the things that we do. Maybe you have an interaction with someone and it gets kind of chippy, you know, and you say some things. It's a good gauge to look back and say, you know, did I glorify God? Did my tongue, did the, my attitude, my tone, the way I talk to him, the way I talk to her, the way I handle my wife, my kids, my coworkers, the people that God's put under me, maybe you're a boss, you know, am I bringing God glory by my interactions? It's a good gauge. So the why, again, promise of ongoing comfort and ministry, the goal of all of that is that the Father would get glory through the Son. Lastly, then the question we want to ask is, what does it mean? What in the heck does this verse mean? What does it mean to ask in his name? Because listen again what he says. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then he doubles down. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Seems pretty straightforward, right? What does it mean to ask in the name of Jesus? I want to say firstly what it, what it does not mean. It, it, it is not a magical incantation to get whatever we want, right? Simply tack on in your name, Lord, in Jesus' name, and then to uh, assume or expect that God has to answer that prayer or he will answer that prayer. Um, this verse, again, it's been widely, I, I think, um, abused, misused. There was a gentleman on television just the other day that had his congregation put their hands on their head and pray in Jesus' name that he would that they would rebuke their baldness. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Don't don't watch Kenneth Copeland. Um, just I mean, there's guys out there that we want to avoid, right? And that's certainly one. Um, but saying stuff in Jesus' name, right? Asking uh, for a, a private jet because I need it for my ministry in the name of Jesus, right? It doesn't mean that we get the things that we ask simply because we tacked that on. So it's not a magical, formulaic prayer that God then is, he has to give us what we want or, or what have you. So what does it mean? Think about names for a moment. What's in a name? Names are not merely just the, the words or the sounds that identify who you are. I mean, at the most basic level, a name is a sign. It signifies a person. Right? It's the sound that we've all agreed upon and the words on a page that we've all agreed upon that identify you. But there's much more in a name. Think about the name Rosa Parks. Uh, December 1st, 65 years ago, a little lady got on a bus. And we had an anniversary of that just this past week or so. And I had the story wrong. I, I had always understood it that she, this is during civil rights, during Jim Crow and all this stuff, segregation, that she got on the bus in the white section and said, enough of this. She actually even didn't do that. She was in the colored section, but the white section got full. So the bus driver, when another white man got on, said, move it, get in the back. And she said, I ain't doing it. It's not happening. We think about the name Rosa Parks. We think of courage, right? We think of someone who took a stand against a sinful, evil law. It was, it was right for her to disobey civil authorities to say this is sinful it needs to be corrected there's times to take those stands going back to the bible think about a man like the apostle paul when you hear about when you hear the name paul it's not just simply a name 
You think of all of the things that he did, what he stood for, that he could stand before emperors, before the high priest, and to boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ. That he literally gave his life. His life was poured out as an offering to service of Jesus, and he lost his head at the end for Christ. And in ancient times, a name carried a special sense of the nature of the person. We see, especially in the Old Testament, that names kind of defined who the person was, right? Jacob was a, was a heel snatcher. He was kind of, a, kind of a shady dude, right? Jesus, his name means God saves. Names had meanings. And in a name, when you think of a person's name, included in there is their reputation, the principles that they live by, the code that they stuck to, the things they stood for. And we see all the time in the Bible that somebody does something in the name of the Lord. Right? You see that formula all over the place. In the name of the Lord means basically on the commission of God or as a representative of God. David meets Goliath in the name of God, sent by the Lord as his representative. Elijah builds an altar in his name, in commission to the Lord as his representative. We're told to be strong and set up a banner in the name of the Lord on the commission of God or as his representative. But we read here that Jesus says that we are to ask in his name, and this he will do. And I think there's two aspects here of this, of this verse. Number one, to ask in the name of Jesus reveals that we have faith in the one that we call upon. When I ask in the name of Christ, I am recognizing that he has the ability to answer my prayer. As we, as we read this morning, it's a recognition of his sovereignty, that he's in control, that I can pray for something to happen across the United States, and God can do it because he's God. Right? So to pray in his name is to, is to come and recognize I'm reliant upon the one in whose name I am praying in, to come believing in what his name represents, that he is Lord, God, Christ, the Son of God. But secondly... To pray in his name is to ask according to the nature and will of he whose name we call upon. So to pray in his name means our prayers must be in line with the principles that Jesus lived by. If a name represents more than the person, but what they stood for, the code they lived by, the accomplishments that they made, then to pray in his name means to pray according to the major principles they live by. What was the major principle that Jesus lived by? That he would bring glory to his Father. He says, all I do, I do, and according to my Father's will, I come according to his authority, and I do all to point to him, so that they would look at Christ and see his Father. So to ask in the name of Jesus is to ask in accordance with his will, with his desires, with his purpose, according to his character. It is not to pray with selfish motives, whether our motives are greed or self-serving. To do so would actually be to pray against the things that Jesus stood for. Let me see if I can't um, illustrate this. There was a man in the church. His name was George. This is a fake story. His name was George, and George loved to sing, and he led the church in the music department for 40 years. He knew the hymnal front and back. He loved the old hymns. 
He loved the richness. He loved the story that, stories that they told. He loved to train up the next generation and teach them how to read the hymnal. He loved to teach them all the great hymns of the Christian tradition. That was his passion in life. George went to be with the Lord. And here we are as a church trying to figure out a way that we can honor the name of George, honor the legacy of George. So what do we do? We have a great idea. We're going to donate all the hymnals to the Salvation Army. We're going to get a drum kit, a couple electric guitars, and we're going to sing contemporary music, and we're going to go all modern. Now, is that honoring the name of George? It would honestly be kind of dishonoring to say we're going to do the thing that he did not love, but we're going to do it in his name and somehow say this is, this is going to um, bless his legacy. So it is then to pray in the name of Jesus with selfish motives or to ask for things that are in opposition to his character and purpose is actually to dishonor his name. It does not bring honor to him, but it dishonors his name. Again, then praying in his name is to pray in line with his purpose and his desires which, as we've seen, was the glory of the Father and thus the glory of the triune God. And he says that when we pray to that end, I will do it. Now, I still want to be slow to say it's not a magic formula to get what we want, because I think we would all probably agree that from our perspective, it would seem that God would get glorified if a revival broke out in the Rogue Valley and every single person in Medford got saved. <laughs> yes, that'd be amazing. And it would seem that God would get glory through that, but we can pray to that end, and it doesn't mean that he has to answer that prayer, right? But I think it's a guiding principle for our lives and for our prayer lives, that as we pray, we pray in his name, we pray according to his will, his desire, his purpose, which is ultimately the glory of God, that Father, Son, and Spirit would be glorified. And as we are being sanctified by the Lord, as we are people that now, Christians that bear the name of Christ, our prayers then ought to more and more be in his name. Meaning our desires, our plans, our goals ought to be with his commission and according to his will. As we begin more and more to align with his, his purpose. So I want to close here briefly, briefly, <laughs> um, with some application, I want to bring this then to our lives, to our, to our souls, three things really quickly. Um, what does this mean for us today? How, how can we apply this to our own lives? Let me say, firstly, that we pray in the name of Jesus because Jesus is the one that has given us the right to pray. We pray in the name of Christ because it is Jesus that has given us the right and ability to pray. Christian believer, you are no longer an enemy of God. You are no longer hostile against your creator. You are no longer alienated from God. Your scorn for, for God, the rebellion that you had in your heart, it has been subdued by His grace. Your heart has been changed. Your nature has been renewed. You've been reconciled into a right relationship with God and also into a right standing with God. We like to say that God is transcendent. That means he is, he is God and nothing else is. That he is, he is unlike us. He is completely other and different. Because of his transcendence, that means that God can be hard to relate to in some ways. Because he is so completely different 
than we are. Yet, God is imminent. He is near to His people, and we have access to Him through prayer. Through Christ, you now have access to the Holy of Holies. Now, in the Old Testament, only one guy ever went in there once a year, the high priest. And before he could even go in, he had to offer sacrifices for himself and for his family before he could do so for the people. And when he went in there, as tradition says, he went in with a rope tied around his ankle. Because if there was any sin he forgot to repent of, if he went in there with any sort of weird motives or did anything foolish, God was going to strike him dead on the spot. And there was no man that was going to enter that place to pull him out. They were going to drag him out by that rope. But now, in Christ, the veil has been removed, the priesthood is gone, the sacrifices are gone, and you have access to the Holy of Holies because of His once-for-all sacrifice. We pray in His name because He has purchased with His own blood the right for us to pray. Number two, I said this earlier, but you got to hear this. <laughs> no pun intended. You have to hear this. You have the ear of God Almighty Himself. You have the ear of God Almighty Himself. Direct access to the throne of grace. As David says in Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? Imagine if you had a, your own personal key to a side door to the Oval Office. And you had a key card, you had your own back entrance into the grounds of the White House. And all you had to do is come in and flash your card. Peace, I'm here, going in. And you had a side door. And any time you wanted, you could walk right in the Oval Office and have the ear of the President of the United States of America. Pretty cool that might be. Very few people ever have that sort of access. And that pales in comparison to the fact that we have the ear of the one who hung the stars. That we have access to God Almighty. That we get God in this way. David Mathis, he wrote a book called Habits of Grace. And he says, I wanted to quote this, thinking about prayer. He says, prayer is not finally about getting things from God, but about getting God himself but about getting God himself. We ought to marvel at prayer, not because God sometimes does stuff for us, but for the simple fact that we have communion with our creator, that we have this blessed relational faith with the Trinity. Again, we have fellowship with the Trinity. As we try to communicate the glories of the Trinity, try to teach and, and really just speak of the majesty of God, how we can articulate God's being. It's so difficult to speak of God as He is. But oh, by the way, you can approach Him at any time. You could bring your petitions. You can bring your concerns. You have access, beloved, to His throne room. Now, think about the God we're speaking of. You remember Isaiah 6, as, as Isaiah the prophet steps into the throne room of God. And what does he say? He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He sees a throne. He's not looking eye to eye with some human king, but he sees God high and lifted up. And the train of his robe 
fills the temple. And the thresholds of the foundation of this temple shake at the one who calls. And what does he say? Hey, God, how's it going? He says, woe is me. I am lost. I am undone. I have no business standing in the presence of this God because I am an unclean man and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. He recognizes in a moment that he is in the presence of one that is holy. And he is not. And he has no place to be there. And Christian, now, through Christ, you have access, bold, confident access to that throne at any time in your life. You can call upon God and he is there. You have his ear. No appointment necessary. In that book that I just mentioned David Mathis, he quotes John Piper, and I wanted to read this quote. It's a very, it's a very Piper-esque sort of quote. But he says about prayer, he says, it's not wrong to want God's gifts and ask for them. Most prayers in the Bible are for the gifts of God. He says, but ultimately, every gift should be desired because it shows us and brings us more of Him. When this world totally fails, the ground of our joy will remain God. Everything today, beloved, is stripped away from you. You will never lose God. Therefore, every prayer for life and health and home and family and job and ministry in this world is secondary. The great purpose to ask in and through all his gifts is that God would be our joy. And we have bold access to this God. We have his ear. Number three, and lastly, the goal of our prayers is the glory of God. The goal of our prayers, ultimately, Him answering them, what we ought to be praying for, is God's glory. Maybe today you're wondering why your prayers don't seem to be answered. Maybe you're laboring in prayer for things that you've spent too much time praying over, and God just doesn't seem to respond. He doesn't seem to show up. He doesn't seem to answer those prayers. I want to ask you a question. What is the motivation of your prayer life? What sort of things do you seek when you go to His throne? Is it an easier life? Is it comfort? Is it perfect health? Is it deliverance from every struggle the moment it hits? Is it a huge bank account so that you never really have to trust God because things are good and I am secure in what I have? And if those are the sort of prayers that we tend to pray, we might ask ourselves the question, how will God be glorified through answering these prayers? How are these prayers, if he answers them, going to make me look more like Jesus? And how will him answering my prayers point others to Christ? Because as the scripture says, as God works all things for good, our ultimate good is conformity to Jesus. Right? When God says good for us, it's not our comfort, it's not our ease, it's not that our life would be more according to the American dream. But our good is conformity to the image of His Son, that He might be glorified through us. If Jesus is getting glory through answering the prayers of His saints, then we ought to be praying in such a way that God would be glorified through the answering of our prayers. If we always pray for things, things to happen, things to get better, things to go our way, then it is not actually God that we want, but the things that He can do for us. 
but when we change our prayers to, Lord, whatever will bring you the most glory in this situation, we find ourselves content with however he decides to answer those prayers. May God be glorified in all that we do and all that we pray. And let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you in prayer. And I confess just a great sin to not recognize prayer as the awesome privilege that it is. That we can even now speak and you hear. That we can even now speak and you listen. That you are concerned with the goings on of our lives. That you love us enough to be intimately involved, even with the small day-to-day mundane things. God, we thank you that through Christ, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We thank you that we have this access, and we thank you that we can come confidently, boldly, that you hear us with, 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 with courage, knowing we will not be destroyed, but that we have the ear of our Creator. May we be men and women of prayer. May we see it not as a duty, but as a great privilege. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.